Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. So as you know, we are currently unpacking Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, which is John, the Apostle John's account of coming face to face with the Son of Man. And as we talked about last week, he found himself in the Spirit, a supernatural act of God whereby John was set free from the bonds, the normal bonds of his physical body, which then enabled him to see, hear, and feel things that he otherwise couldn't. And it was in that condition of being in the Spirit that John tells us that he heard a loud voice, like a trumpet that was telling him to write a book and that he was then to send that book to the seven prominent churches located in Asia Minor. And when, when he turned, as we, any of us would do, to see who this voice is and where this voice is coming from, he saw a vision of seven lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands, he saw a person whom he described as being like the Son of Man, which is a term that Jesus used during his earthly ministry to identify himself both as divine and human. And then he sets out to explain or to describe, uh, would be a better word, uh, the physical appearance of the Son of Man, and it was unusual to say the least. Uh, The first thing that he noticed about this person in the midst of the golden lampstands was that he had a long robe and a golden sash, and and basically those garments are akin to the high priest of Israel. So those were very significant uh, in communicating uh, something to him and should be to us as well. He spoke of his hair being white like wool, like snow, which pictures purity and holiness. His eyes were like a flame of fire, which... Uh, pictures discernment that cuts away the pretense and is able to see us as we really are as opposed to how we might want to present ourselves to be. He spoke of this person's feet being like burnished bronze, which many uh, Bible scholars equate with the brazen altar of the temple of God. It was the place where God's judgment would rest and the atoning sacrifice would be made. In like manner, uh, Jesus himself on the cross, God's judgment rested on him, and his blood then became the atoning sacrifice that appeased God's righteous judgment against human sin. And then finally there was this voice. The voice that he said was like the roar of many waters, representing strength and authority of the words of the Son of Man our high priest. Now, the context of these descriptions reveal that what John saw was not literal. It was symbolic. And what I mean by that is just to simply say that the Son of Man's eyes are not actually fire, nor are his feet actually burnished bronze or brass. But Despite the fact that those things that he saw were symbolic, the symbolism represents what is nonetheless literally true, okay? It doesn't take away what is literal and what is true because uh, the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, is our high priest. He is holy and pure. He is uh, discerning like a fire, being able to see what is true in every heart. He is the sufficient atonement for sin and his words carry the strength and authority of that which is inerrant infallible and complete now along with these five characteristics that John observed about the son of man there there were three others that I had planned to talk about last week but we just ran out of time and so we're going to pick up there in verse 16 and then we'll begin to unpack that all the way to the end of chapter 1 so let's begin reading with verse 16 going to verse 20 and uh, this this message will complete our journey of discovery in Revelation chapter 1 
Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, as we... Um, I have read this passage, these words of yours that were recorded through John. Uh, Lord, our hearts are filled with wonder about such things. We desire to be able to understand. We also, I think, want to get beyond any sensationalism to what do these things mean for us and, and, and how should we receive these revelations and how should they impact our lives especially those who are followers of Jesus but but even those who aren't I would pray that the things that we talk about here today would be used by the Spirit of God to draw them into a place of repentance and faith but Lord all the things that happen I I pray that it would bring honor to you that it would be honoring to your name this morning and that it would be beneficial to all who encounter uh, this time in the word and I pray this in Jesus name Amen. So as we look at verse 16, we have three things there. We have stars, we have a sword, and we have the sun. Let's break those down. Seven stars. Uh, Obviously, we don't have to fish around looking for the meaning of the stars uh, because the Son of Man tells us exactly what they are and what they represent. They represent the seven angels verse 20 is where we find that the seven angels of the seven churches that John is writing to and so that right there is very clear Uh, but what isn't all that clear is what is meant by the word angels that's not quite clear when we look at that word we must ask ourselves is the intent to communicate Uh, that this is going to supernatural spirit beings or is this meant for someone else and the answer to the question really comes down to context context drives so much of what we interpret as it comes uh, and relates to the scripture so let's dig into that the word that John used there in the passage is angeloi Okay, and it translates into English as angel. But the baseline meaning of angeloi is messenger. Okay, that's, that's the meaning. And, and so sometimes in Scripture we find that the angeloi or the, the messenger is supernatural. As in Gabriel when he visited with, with Mary to announce to her that she would be the vehicle through which the Messiah, the Son of God, would come into the world. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. And sometimes the messenger is natural or human as in the messengers of John the Baptist when they went and visited Jesus uh, asking him if he was the one, the Messiah they'd been waiting for. Or was there another yet to come? John chapter 7, verse 24. What I want to bring to your attention is is that both of those scriptures that I've just referenced, in both cases, the word angeloi was used. The context, then, is what identifies the nature of the messenger. Is the messenger supernatural or is is the messenger natural? Now, in this particular case in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, I believe that the context would lead us to understand that the messengers that are mentioned there, the angeloi, are natural. And I want to give you three contextual points that I feel 
points us in that direction. Uh, The first thing is this, is that there is no place in all of Scripture where angels are found having a supervisory relationship with the church. However, these messengers that are being addressed, they do. And so, since we find no place in Scripture where angels have any supervisory relationship with the church, it would tend to point away from supernatural messengers. Number two, the message to the churches that we're going to jump into beginning next week, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, includes the command to repent. Now, angels do not sin. Since angels do not sin, they cannot repent. And that pushes us away from the idea that these are supernatural beings. Number three, to define these messengers as angels this is, is, to, pres- is to presume that Christ is sending a message to heavenly beings through John, an earthly agent, so that it may reach earthly churches through angelic representatives. <laughs> and all that's kind of convoluted, wouldn't you say? Uh, I'll say so for you, okay? I, I believe a more straightforward understanding of this is that uh, John receives the message from the Son of Man, and then he in turn sends the message to the human messengers of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so, again, I feel confident then to say that the seven stars represent the seven messengers of the seven churches, that, 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 that those are humans, most likely uh, one of the elders from each of those congregations. So, that put to bed, what do or does the seven messengers, the stars, in the Son of Man's hand symbolize? What is the symbol? What are we supposed to understand that that the Son of Man, uh, that John saw him holding these seven stars in his right hand? Well, that brings me to truth point number one. Given that the Son of Man is revealed in Scripture as the owner and builder of his church, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and also the head of the church, Colossians chapter 1, verse 8, and also the supreme judge of the church, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I believe then that we can say that the seven stars in his right hand uh, represents his authority and control over his church. I believe that's the message we are to understand from that. He is holding them. He has them. Authority and control. We come then to the sharp two-edged sword. What's that all about? Well, swords are often presented as instruments of protection. And so we could say perhaps that the sword coming out of the mouth there of the Son of Man represents his protection of his people against their enemies. But when we we look into the letters that were sent to the seven churches, we actually find that the sword coming out of the Son of Man's mouth is aimed not at the enemies of the church from without, but in fact is aimed at the enemies of the church from within. I want you to notice what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at verses 12 and 16. These are the words of Jesus to John. He said, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. One of the things you're going to notice when we start next week going through those seven letters to the seven churches is that Jesus with each church goes back to something that John observed about his person and he introduces himself to that church using one of those observations and here it's the sharp two-edged sword verse 16 
Jesus continues his message saying, therefore, and he's talking to the church, not those outside of the church. He says, therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and warn, uh, war excuse me, against them with the sword of my mouth. He will war against the unrepentant in the church. Truth point number two. We might wonder, well, what, why, would, why would Jesus war against people who are, quote, in the church? The reason? Because not all who are in the church really are part of the church. I hate to bust our bubbles here today, but just because you attend church, just because you join a church, is not the absolute rock-solid concrete evidence that you are part of the church, meaning that you are actually born again and belong to Christ. There are people in our churches worldwide who are there every Sunday. They sing the songs. They carry their Bibles. They memorize the verses. But in their heart, they're still trusting in their own good self. And not only that, there are people within our churches who are wolves in sheep's clothing who are there to lead the sheep away. Acts chapter 20, verse 30 speaks to that. From among you, from among your own selves will arise men and women speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so, part two of truth point number two, just as the sword can be used to protect what is true, uh, it can also be used to judge what is false. The Son of Man, with eyes of fire, can discern with pinpoint accuracy who or what is true to him and who or what is false finally we come to this phrase in verse 16 about his face being like the sun shining in full strength and basically that is pointing us toward the brilliance of the glory of God in Psalm 84 11, God is referred to as a sun and shield in Matthew chapter 17 verse 2 when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and his glory was unveiled, it is said that his face shone like the sun. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, uh, we find the account of the Pharisee Saul who became Paul after he was brought to, to faith in Christ. He's on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to persecute followers of Christ. And it says of him that a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground. By the way, it doesn't look as brilliant there as it really was. But see, Saul, Paul, was on a donkey. He's riding along. He's heading to Damascus. He's ready to put those nasty Christians in chains and put them in prison. He can't wait. He's excited about his job because he thinks he's representing God in doing this, right? And so he's going along. And the Bible says that when this bright light hit him, it literally knocked him off his donkey. I won't say anything else. I'll let you hear that however you choose. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm human too. So, uh, so he gets knocked off his donkey. We're, we're talking about the Shekinah glory of God coming down and literally interrupting this man's life and putting him in the dirt to which he does repent and, and comes to faith. And, of course, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Truth point number three. The radiant glory of God is pictured throughout Scripture as a bright light. You'll see that in the Old Testament. You'll see that in the New Testament. A bright light that when it is encountered by humans 
brings either terror, humility, or repentance from those who encounter it. And I gave you, I think, uh, four cross-references there in your notes that you can go and kind of look at some of that on your own. So, the total, total authority over his church, judgment on those within and without of the church who refused to repent, and the unveiled glory of his divinity. These realities are what are being represented by the stars and the sword and the sun. Verse 17 and 18. As we saw last Sunday, verse 17, when John came face to face with the Son of Man, he fell at his feet as dead. Uh, in the ESV, it, it says there, uh, as though dead. It's just a point. It's no big deal, but just a point. The word though is not in the original text. It, it, it's, it's added for English understanding. But the point of all of that is simply this, that John did not actually die and encounter a resurrection. Uh, Instead, as one who is dead, uh, John lost all physical abilities. I mean, he falls down. He can't hear, he can't see, he can't stand, he can't speak. I mean, he is as one who is dead at the feet of Jesus. And that then prompted Jesus, the Son of Man, to reach out to him and to touch him in loving compassion and to identify himself to John. And when he reached out to touch John, he said, Fear not. Fear not. You know, those words, fear not, are comforting words, no matter who says it. But when it is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God that is using those words, then it becomes something that is an inexpressible comfort. To John's heart, this, this thing he's encountering knocks him to the ground and he has no capacity to respond as a living man but there was no need to fear and so Jesus reassures him fear not and then he goes on to give five points of identity to help John understand who it is he is coming face to face with let's take a look at those five points of identity in verse 17b, the first are the words, I am. Ego eme in the Greek, Yahweh in the Hebrew. It is the covenant name of God, which means the self-existent one, the one who has no beginning, the one who has no end. Therefore, the one who is the first and the last. I am would have been a phrase that John would have been very familiar with. And what a great starting point. Verse 18 is the second identifier where Jesus says that he is the living one. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's look at a couple of scriptures that will help us to determine that. I'll take you back to the Gospel of John. John also wrote this Gospel, verses 1 through 4 which says in the beginning was the word and we know that the word there is identified as the son of God as the son of man in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him that's important right there all things were made through him both that which doesn't live and that which does and without him was not anything made that was made and verse 4 is where I'm ultimately getting to. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, is the one through whom everything that was made came into existence. And there are many things 
that came into existence that have life. Where did they get the life? Whether it's plant life, whether it's animal life, whether it's human life, whether it's angelic life, where does the life come from? Well, it comes from him. He is the life. He said that in John 14, 6. I am the way. Say it with me. I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. He is the life. It is because of him that we live. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But then in verse 18, we find this next identifier. I died. (laughs) The living one, the life, died. He died in his flesh. In fact, he took on flesh so that he could die. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 18 gives us this phrase, I am alive forevermore. This is obviously speaking of the resurrection that came after his death on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I'm going to summarize all those points with this next truth point before I hit the last identifying point truth point number four God the son who cannot die took on flesh so that he could take upon himself our death if you ever wonder why did he need to come and take on flesh because the curse upon mankind was death. In the day that you eat thereof, Adam and Eve, you will surely die. And that death then was passed along to everyone who was of Adam and Eve. And so if the Savior was going to save us from our sin, he had to become like one of us so that he could die like one of us and absorb in his infinite being the full weight of death that was to come. In his deity, however, death could not hold him. It could not hold him. So he rose from the dead in his humanity, never to die again, which makes him the firstborn of the dead, meaning the firstborn from humanity that rises from the dead never to face death again. Hey, folks. Are you with me or are you almost like dead right now? (laughs) You know, if you're a Christian, that same thing is true of you. You know, you're going to die. I'm sorry to break it to you. Unless the rapture were to happen right now or within the next 20 years, most of us in this room, well, many of us in this room are going to be gone. But the good news is, is that we will rise in our humanity again. And when we do, that will be an eternal existence, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Identifying statement number five, Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys to death and Hades. Keys speak to authority. Whoever holds the key has the right to open the door has the ability to open the door or to lock it shut keys speak to authority death speaks of the condition and Hades speaks of the place and he says I hold the keys of the condition and I hold the keys to the place 
Truth point number five. Through his death and resurrection, the Son of God holds the authority over who dies and who lives. Don't, don't change that just yet. Just hold that for just a second. I want to hold these people in just a little bit of tension while I get a drink. But not only that, I just want to hold you in tension for a second. What in the world? He has the authority over who dies and who lives? What, what are we talking about there? All right, well, let's go to point, part number two of truth point number five. What is meant by death and life? Hell is eternal death. Now, I want to make something clear to y'all. I think most of you know this, but there may be some who may have some confusion. That eternal death or hell is not annihilism, annihilationism. Y'all know what to be annihilated means? It means to go out of existence. It means not to exist. There is no life. There is no soul. There is no spirit. There is no body. To be annihilated is to be gone. You're just, there, you're just gone. There's no existence. But eternal hell is not about annihilism. It is about separation from God. In all, for all of eternity, yes, in a place of torment, the Scripture teaches us. By the way, when we think of death, we need to always remember, when you think of death, a loved one who's died, whatever, you need to be thinking the word separation because that's what it means. It doesn't mean to cease existing. It does mean, though, to cease existing as you have been. If I were to drop dead on this stage right now, which I hope doesn't happen, at least until we're done with this message, my spirit and soul would leave this physical body and be separated. You'd be left to clean up the mess, the body, right? But death, my soul, my spirit's not going to cease to live. I'm going to continue living. I'm just not living here in this body. So when we talk about eternal death or, uh, or, or eternal hell, we're talking about those who in their soul, spirit, and body are eternally separated from their creator. And Jesus says, I have the keys to that. Heaven, on the other hand, we like this one much more, is eternal life. And eternal life is not just about living forever. Because listen to me, church, everyone who is born lives forever. Everyone, I'm sorry, I got to back up. I'm sorry. Everyone who is conceived, whether they ever come out of the womb or not, lives forever. Forever. So eternal life is not about the length of, it's about the quality of. And the idea of eternity with God in heaven is all about being united with God in Christ Jesus. Inasmuch as eternal hell is about separation, eternal heaven is about being united with God, with our Creator, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last thing that I want to share on this is that Jesus, God's Son, the Son of Man, is the deciding factor between eternal death and eternal life. Make no mistake about it. Despite the pluralism of our world today, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one Savior, only one. You know, you know, I got a little bit extra time, don't I? Do you know why Christianity falls out of favor with so many in the world? When all the other religions don't? Because Christianity teaches something that is exclusive. Exclusive. 
Christ is the only Savior, period. All others are imposters. And it is only coming to him in faith that will regenerate the sin-sick soul. There is no other means or method. And you know, if we Christians would say, well, well, well Jesus is my Savior, but he, you know, uh, Buddha may be yours, and we can celebrate that. Then Christianity would become tolerable. But, but you can't say that. Because Christianity is based upon the revelation of the word of God. And God's word tells us there is only one. So I can't be a Christian and throw this in the trash or ignore what it says. Those baked beans I had last night are really jazzing me up. They were good. I know what you're thinking, and you're, you're going to be eternally separated for that. No. But let's get back to seriousness, okay? Let's get back to seriousness. Part two. If one embraces Jesus by faith, he receives eternal life. She receives eternal life. If one rejects Jesus for any other means of salvation, then there will be no salvation. Only eternal death. Jesus is the deciding factor. He holds the keys. He holds the keys to death and to Hades. And though it's not mentioned in that phrase, he holds the keys to heaven and eternal life. So John had no need to fear. He had no need to fear. He had long ago turned from self and sin. He had long ago embraced Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And it was that Savior and Lord that he knew that was there, revealing himself in unveiled glory. And we also, who have embraced Jesus by faith, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fear because the glorious Christ that we encounter here in Revelation chapter 1 who holds the keys of death and Hades, he is the one who died in our place. He is the one who rose from the dead with new eternal life for all who would turn to him in faith and trust him in a position of repentance. So when we look at these descriptors, these identifying statements, there could be no mistake who John encountered. Uh, he identified, John identified this one as one like the Son of Man, and the Son of Man then made his identity clear. He is God the Son. He is Jesus the Christ. One of the things that uh, biblical students uh, look for when they study the scripture is they look for an outline. They look for a, a breakdown. Uh, they look for a key, if you will, that will help them to understand the passage they're studying. Verse 19 gives us such a key. Uh, Jesus here in this statement gives John the outline of what he was to write. Jesus said, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The key to understanding, at least in a major way, a foundational key, I'll say it that way, is this right here. The things you've seen, the things that are, and the things that are yet to come. The things you have seen represent chapter 1. They represent John coming face to face with the Son of Man. That is something that he had immediately seen, and the Lord Jesus says, I want you to write that down. I want you to record that. I want 
I want my followers to be able to know some of these things that you've encountered. But he also told John, I want you to write the things that are. And when he said that almost 2,000 years ago, or probably right at 2,000 years ago, he was referring, Jesus was referring to things that were in existence in that moment, the things that are. This represents chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 reveal the condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor. It also reveals what Jesus had to say to those seven churches, and those seven churches were up, running, and in existence when Jesus said, I want you to write the things that are. And then he spoke to those things that were in that moment. But then he also says, I want you to write the things that are yet to come. And that represents chapters 4 through 22. Things that were future when John wrote them down. Things that 2,000 years later are still future. But they will come to pass. They will come to pass because the author of creation and time has predetermined their days their events, and their outcomes. So as we go through, we get past the things that were for us but are in that context and begin to look at the things that are yet to come, you can be assured that the things that are yet to come will come because the one who said they are to come is the one who has already predetermined the dates, the times, the events, and the outcomes. So, in the space of five Sundays, we have made our way through chapter one. We have dove in, we have taken a look, we have learned a little something about the things that John saw. Over the next seven Sundays, beginning next week, uh, we're going to work our way through the things that are. That sounds kind of interesting because for us, we would say those are the things that were. And yet, listen to me carefully. The seven churches that we're going to look at, they stood for themselves. They were were entities that were in real time. But those seven churches also represent the whole of the church age. And and when we study those churches, we, we, we discover the conditions that continue to exist within the church, even within the context of us, the mission church. And so when we look at those seven churches, to us, it's the things that were. When we look at those seven churches, in reality, they are still the things that are because the things that you find in those seven churches still exist today and are relevant to us and are not for us just to learn history, but to learn something of ourselves something of the human condition and how it works even when it's redeemed but living in the flesh then in january of 2024 we're going to begin a lengthy journey exploring and unpacking the things that are still to come a time of unspeakable judgment on the world on satan and on his demonic realm but also a time where God's grace will fall on many, where Christ's enemies will be vanquished, where his kingdom will be established, where sinners will be judged, and where a new heaven and earth will emerge from the ashes of the current heaven and earth that we're familiar with. Verse 20, the last of chapter 1. In my introduction... Uh, to Revelation, I stated that among the other things about the book of Revelation is that it is a book of mysteries. And in verse 20, the first mystery to come from its pages, the seven lampstands and the seven stars, is resolved or solved. Um, Throughout Revelation, we will come across mysteries Not all of them, but many of them, the Lord will solve them for us. 
and give us the meaning. But as to the seven stars in his right hand, we already know this. They are the seven messengers of the church. We've already dealt with that, so we won't go any further. As to the seven lampstands, they represent the seven churches. And as I've said, beginning next Sunday, we're going to begin making our way through the personal messages that Jesus dictated for them, for us. But to bring chapter 1 to a close, I want to point you back or point you ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. Take a look at that with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It is that phrase in verse 1 that I want to call our attention to. It tells us that our Lord, Jesus, is in the midst of his church. He is moving among us. Truth point number six. Our high priest, Jesus, is not absent, but he is with us. Just as he promised his disciples in Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The age is not over yet. But he is moving in our midst. And the thing that I want us to grasp here this morning is that he is moving in our midst with those eyes of fire. Are you listening? Those eyes that can go right through and melt the pretense that we put forward he's in our midst he's moving among us and he's evaluating he's looking and he is if we have ears to hear pointing out our shortcomings oh surely not pastor mike the mission church we don't have any shortcomings Oh, the list is too long. But the good news is this. If we are willing to repent, if we are willing to realign ourselves with him, then all is good. All is well. Because he doesn't point out our shortcomings to beat us over the head with them. He points out our shortcomings so that we can deal with them. So that we can deal with them in his grace so we can deal with them in his mercy, so that we can get from being off track back on track and realign with him because he is our head. And if we do, then all is well and there's no problem. But if we don't, if we ignore his critique, if we ignore his call to repent, then he may very well choose to discipline us. And he warned the church in Ephesus of this very thing. Listen to what he said. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So that's the call. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Our Lord is filled with grace. He is filled with grace for those who will repent, who will turn, who will realign themselves with him, but he is filled with fearful judgment for those who turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to his call to repent. So I bring the message to a close this morning by first of all addressing the Christians in the room. If you consider yourself to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then what I'm saying now is directed right at you right at you i want to ask is your life in alignment with the lord you know i can't make that judgment i I have to i have to worry about myself my mother always told me that mike if you just worry about yourself you have your hands full because i used to point to everybody else mike if you just take care of yourself you'll have your hands full she was right I am a handful when it comes to that, right? But each of us are. But 
Christian, seriously, is, is your life in alignment with the Lord? Are, are you pursuing a closer, more intimate walk with him? Are you finding the works of the flesh going down and the fruit of the Spirit rising up in your life? Or are you one of those who's just clinging to a prayer that you prayed years ago in hopes that it'll take you to heaven one day? You know, we all sin, we all make mistakes, we all get off track. And our Lord is gracious and he's willing to take away sin and he's willing to give us the power to realign ourselves with him when we repent. But for those who are off track and willingly choose, willingly choose, and some do, to remain off track, I'll say it this way. If you even belong to Christ at all, then you can expect that his hand of discipline is going to come your way because he disciplines those he loves and he loves his children. And he doesn't want you wallowing in the mar of sin, but to learn more and more of what it means to walk in the light and the righteousness that is his. So Christian, I ask you today, where are you? And I'm going to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit. We're about to take communion here in a moment, and, and, and we're going to have a moment for that. I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit, where, where are you? And Perhaps there's the need today to repent and get on track. To those who are not yet in the family of God, I encourage you to consider where you are because apart from Christ, you are outside of his grace and you are living under his judgment for sin. But as we have said, his love compelled him to send his son Jesus to be the atonement for sin. And he took that upon himself and he made the payment, the sufficient payment for our sin. And he rose from the dead with new life. And he's willing to give that to whomever will turn to him, embrace him in faith and repentance. And my question to those of you who do not know Christ, are you willing to turn today? Do you have questions? If you do, my contact information is on the screen. If you will reach out, we will reach back. And I guarantee you the Lord will meet you where you are. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share these things. Now as we transition to a moment of reflection and celebration. Reflection on the lives we are living and celebration of what you did to bring us into your family. I pray that you would bless this time. I pray that you would be honored by it. And I pray that it would be an encouragement to all who know you and something that draws those who don't to you in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.